Welcome to Emory Innovators, a series of conversations between the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, and Emory alumni who are innovation leaders or entrepreneurs or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. Welcome to this episode of Emory Innovators, brought to you by the Hatchery Emory Center for Innovation. This week, we're speaking with alumna Megan Kennedy, who earned her Master's of Public Health from the Emory's Rollins School of Public Health. Megan's experience intersects innovation, public health, and social entrepreneurship. After uh, an epidemiology career at CDC, she founded Orange Sparkle Ball, an innovation and impact consultancy that accelerates initiatives in the private and public sector and works with both domestic and global partners and also happens to be a lot of fun to say. Uh, with an acceleration methodology rooted in design thinking, Orange Sparkle Ball focuses on external or open innovation innovation program design, social entrepreneurship, and community activation. Megan has taught at Georgia Institute of Technology and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She has been a guest reviewer at Georgia Tech since 2007, a judge and mentor for the Global Social Venture Competition and Industrial Design Society of America, a mentor for social entrepreneurs, and is frequently invited to sit on innovation and entrepreneurial panels. So Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Shannon. I'm excited to talk to you as always. So um, we're going to dig into your career at CDC and experience in founding and leading your own consultancy. But for the benefit of Amory students and staff in attendance today, I'd like to start this uh, discussion of your innovator's journey a little earlier. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about your time at Emory and your experience of working with uh, or working on your MPH at Rollins. I sure can. Um... So Rollins, when I was there, it was a long time ago. I, I was just a child. Um, and it was, Rollins was in the basement of the American Cancer Society building. So it was a very different experience than um, what people envision as Rollins now going on three buildings. Um, so my time, I, I decided to go to Rollins because I wanted to work at CDC. So it was a very, it was one of the few very deliberate decisions I've made in my life. Um, so I went to Rollins specifically to get involved um, with CDC in some way, and I wanted to do HIV work. So my goal was to kind of talk my way into a CDC job. So when I was at Rollins, um, one of the things that's kind of nice at Rollins, and I'm assuming this still happens, is you can go do go to talks at CDC pretty um, often, so weekly. So I made sure that I was very um, deliberate about going to those talks, meeting people at CDC, um, talking, understanding um, what it meant to be an epidemiologist. I was at, in going to school for epidemiology at Rollins. Um, so I really used Rollins as a stepping stone to understand what what it meant to be an epidemiologist at CDC. So that was my, I was very, very focused on that. That was the bulk of my kind of thoughts about my experience. 
Uh, we're going to come back probably to this theme of, uh, you know, it was one of the few deliberate decisions I've made in my life because <laughs> <laughs> this is something we seem to hear from so many innovators. And um, I think it's a really important message for students in particular, young innovators and entrepreneurs to hear because uh, they often come at this with so much focus and uh, we'll later learn that one of the things you have to constantly pivot is your own life and plans. Um, but for the moment, let's just keep moving forward with pretending it's purposeful. So um, I'm curious, um, you know, a lot of students who come to the hatchery have questions about uh, successfully managing this transition from student life to professional life. And uh, as you mentioned, because you were working on a graduate degree, you know, you had a plan in mind and found it relatively easy, probably. But I'm still wondering if there's anything else you'd like to share with students in the audience about the challenges of transitioning from student life to professional life or of translating your disciplinary expertise to professional endeavor. I'm probably going to not be the greatest person to talk to about this. Um, but the, the one thing I will add on what I said about taking advantage of the opportunity, opportunities you have to um, look at what it means to be a professional in whatever area you're studying. So those, um, those talks that I would go to at CDC were typically EIS officers, so epidemiologic intelligence service officers who were talking about an outbreak investigation that they, would, they had done. So that's like standard, that's like epidemiology 101. So I would go every week and look at what it actually means to be an epidemiologist, what the language is, how do you talk about kind of how you're thinking about your process, how do you report your process. Um, so that's my advice, trying to figure out how to make that jump is really start to understand what it looks like to do the thing that you want to do as a professional. That was super helpful for me. Um, you know, to touch on yet another theme, we're going to have to revisit this. Probably not the greatest person to talk to this. Uh, there's a humility, I think, that goes with innovation work. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I think it's um, it's fair to say that your first job was a very good one. Um, you landed a position as an epidemiologist at CDC, and you remained there for seven years. Uh, but then you decided to undertake further studies in industrial design at Georgia Tech. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what motivated that decision and maybe also share some highlights of the design program that inspired you to set off in this new direction. For sure. Um, the CDC job was great. I, I loved that experience. Um, I basically learned everything in those seven years that I have then replicated over um, my entire business. That was the only... Let me say, that was the only job I've ever had, real job. So <laughs> I learned a whole lot that I've used um, in my entrepreneurial career. Um, as I was there, um, it, the, so science in general is rooted in the scientific method, which is all about certainty. So it's a very linear process. It typically is defining um, a very specific question that you want to prove or disprove and then going through a rigid process to prove or disprove that. And at CDC, that often is, um, you know, it might be like a three-year cooperative agreement. So you're working for three years on some question or collecting data where you might be able to answer some questions. 
and then doing analyses and kind of answering the question that you started asking three years ago. Mm-hmm. And as somebody who's very action oriented and future focused, yeah. um, that was a very hard thing for me because it felt like we were moving um, through molasses. Mm-hmm. And that was happening during the 90s where HIV was um, really out of control. It was, it was before there was an effective treatment. I had friends who were dying. Um, I, was, I worked in Kenya and some, and some of the people that we were working with on the study died during the time we were working on the study. So it was hard to be in this very slow moving scientific process as in, in, you know, I'm kind of retrospectively putting this lens on it, but as we're in a disruptive pandemic, mm-hmm. so moving methodically through something um, in a time of great disruption felt like it was the wrong fit to me. So the, um, the genesis of my looking somewhere else was trying to figure out if there was another problem solving methodology that was a better fit for for my temperament, honestly. Um, (laughs) And so I stumbled on the industrial design program at Tech um, and went and talked to the guy who was heading the program at the time. And he said, uh, well, if you can put a portfolio together, come back and talk to me. And I didn't even know what a portfolio was. I was, you know, I was a science person through every bit of my, um, my schooling. And so I was like, all right, a portfolio. So I did, again, I just talked my way into it. Like I talked my way into CDC. Um, Luckily, they needed somebody to teach a research methods class. And I think he saw that on my forehead, like stamped, like I got one. (laughs) So it worked for everyone. But um, the beauty of that program, and I truly love everything about industrial design is that it's all rooted in design thinking, which is code for the innovation process. And so, and it's a problem solving methodology that allows you to directionally and very quickly iteratively test and understand whether something is working and move forward quickly. And that to me was the perfect um, fit for me. And so I didn't, I wouldn't say that I, I understood exactly what I was walking into when I walked into it, but as I was understanding more about what industrial design was, and it was really people hadn't really started thinking about design or talking about design thinking in the same way. Um, it, I fell in love with it and it turned out to be really the problem solving methodology of my life. Hmm. Not to be dramatic. Uh, no, not at all. But in fact, uh, you know, uh, to sort of uh, you know, move ahead with something that we, we often ask towards the end, you know, one of the things that we often hear to kind of tie up some of these threads of what you've said so far is that, um, you know, innovators, one of the things they most often have to innovate is themselves and their own career trajectory, right? Because, uh, you know, we've all heard the numbers that like 90% of startups fail. The average tenure for a chief innovation officer in, in corporate now is somewhere just under a year and a half. Um, so there are these incredible pressures and there's a, a, you know, a real imperative to be able to pivot and change professionally. So, you know, almost once you 
become enamored of and start to use these methodologies, you are setting yourself up as somebody who's going to have to continually do this. Um, you're putting yourselves in the environments, let's just say, where that becomes important. So I wonder if maybe you could tell us about a time that you have intentionally used, you know, innovation process to innovate yourself and your career outcomes to achieve better outcomes. For sure. Um, I, so I do that constantly. Um, my, some of my colleagues are, are on listening right now and they're probably chuckling or groaning depending on what their mood is. Um, but I often, so one of the things that drives how I think about the world, our work, everything is pattern matching. So we hear about pattern matching in how VCs are awarding money to startups. Um, and that's often kind of talked about in a negative way. Um, there are obviously are pros and cons to it, but if I see the pattern of something here and I understand it's the same process that's happening in an adjacent place or, or not even an adjacent place, um, I start to kind of talk about that, seed that idea, especially to people who are experts in the second area to, to understand whether it's resonating with them as I'm moving forward. So that's a, a very um, abstract version of it, but I'm constantly seeding ideas into conversations to measure, you know, kind of validate them um, across a bunch of different players, across industries, sectors, um, approaches, that kind of thing. So that's pretty baked into, honestly, my day-to-day -day life. Um, and I think that makes me really good at adopting new ideas mm -hmm. um, and also super challenging because I know my coworkers have learned to, um, <laughs> to, to live with this, but something will come up and I'll, I'll connect two things and I'll say, we need to sort how these things are connected. And I haven't even been able to explain how they're connected yet. Um, and we're trying to move forward. Um, so anyhow, that's, that's an example. It was not a very coherent one, but I, I think well, it has to become a way of life. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it was actually very coherent in the sense that, um, you know, the, the answer was, or the question was specifically, how have you consciously applied the innovation process? And the answer was very meta. Right, like it's become so ingrained in you that it's, you know, there wasn't even how have I done it consciously, it's, oh, this is what I do, right? Like I compare, you know, uh, conceptual frameworks and patterns from this uh, field of endeavor to this field of endeavor and understand that somewhere in there, there's this like luscious collision that makes for, you know, new material outcomes, right? I mean, part of what we do is accelerate ideas in the sense of like a genuine particle accelerator and we're throwing things together and crashing them up to, to sort of see what comes of it. Um, and, you know, you can do that with paradigms as well at a more meta level, understand that you're taking frameworks and, and mashing them up, not just things. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe I was born to have this conversation <laughs> with you, uh, you know, on the on the question too of, of how would you say you've consciously done this? Like you, I would say, well, conscious, I don't know, maybe it was the only intentional thing I ever did in my career, right? As my wife puts it so succinctly, you have the resume of a schizophrenic. And I'm like, yes. 
<laughs> I so. find you very validating, Shannon. I, I really appreciate it. Um, <laughs> at a more at a more concrete, just to give a very concrete example, when I decided I was going to go talk to Georgia Tech, I thought, okay, I'm going to try this sort of new idea on for size, and I went and tested it, and then got kind of positive feedback. It was basically like, you know, bring us a portfolio. I it wasn't negative feedback, I'll say that. So it wasn't like, this is ridiculous that you want to do this. Um, and so then I brought the portfolio. So iteration one brought the portfolio, which, wow, was really bad. Iteration two, but I still kind of, it was enough to get past the thing um, and then said yes to do it. So I, I think that's a more concrete version, um, but it that is just kind of my, that's how I operate. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's step back then and pick up the thread of leaving Georgia Tech and founding Orange Sparkle Ball. So you describe it as a cross-industry accelerator that helps move or to move cutting-edge ideas and initiatives forward. Um, I will say from having chatted with you previously and even from this most recent answer that that uh, probably doesn't capture the scope or complexity um, or, or even the importance of much of what you are working on at Orange Sparkle Ball. So I wonder if you could talk more about uh, some of the big projects uh, that you're currently focused on. Thank you. And I think I might need to talk to you more about how to describe Orange Sparkle Ball better because I have a feeling that you could help me in your schizophrenic <laughs> resume way. <laughs> so thank you. Well, so I am. At which point I can hear my wife's laughter yet again. Like, you want this guy helping you with your resume? <laughs> you already right. have some work to do, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we'll have fun doing it regardless. There you go. Um, yeah. Um, Okay, so I'm really bad at this. So I actually had to make a list of the projects we're working on so I could answer this question. So I'm going to actually really answer it. So right now we are co-creating an incubation program um, with a group at a large state university. So that's one thing. We're in the process of pitching an applied innovation program. Um, we're creating a design thinking conference with a professional association. Um, we're implementing a series of pilots around autonomy. Um, we're continuing to build our innovation network that we started that's called Evolve Innovation Network. Um, and the thing that's probably, well, it's near and dear to my heart um, because it's with Rollins and it's something I believe in is um, we have created and are continuing to produce a uh, um, thought and discussion series called Public Health Plus with Rollins. That's about the intersection of public health and other disciplines um, because it is my personal theory. And I think this is being borne out by the discussions that when you have those two disciplines and kind of the connectivity point where there's tension um, and also nice synergy is kind of where the innovation happens. So mm -hmm. it's an innovation series that is about public health touching other areas. And so we've run one of those and one season one we've run um, and we're planning summer and season two next for next year. So mm -hmm. that's 
some of the things <laughs> we're working on. <laughs> um, it's interesting, this, this question of the sort of borderline cases, um, I've always found very interesting too. I uh, used to have a film or a podcast and we were not covering certain you know, core classics like Big Heat, but we did It's a Wonderful Life as film noir. And people are like, seriously, why, why have you? So what am I gonna learn from talking about Big Heat? Right? Like we all know that it bears all the hallmarks of the genre. So what I love though in this list in addition to sort of working at these, uh, you know, these crossroads of different industries or disciplines, um, is that you clearly define innovation broadly and in a very nuanced way. And it seems that um, you're really focused on how it can be leveraged for various outcomes, right? And so, um, you know, for example, in the brief bio you provided today, you talk about innovation program design, social entrepreneurship, community act activation. Could you provide a definition of innovation as you see it? And then I also wonder if you could share thoughts on some of the ways that you think innovation gets misinterpreted, misapplied, or sort of overly prescribed. I have a lot of thoughts on that, <laughs> shockingly. Um, so, so my definition of innovation is super easy. It's change. So any, um, any change that you want to make happen, um, if you use what we can call design thinking, human-centered design, the innovation process, um, you can start directionally uh, kind of chipping away at the barriers to that change and moving things forward. So I don't have, I'm not an innovation slob, a snob at all. Slob, I hope I'm not a slob too, but I'm not a snob <laughs> about innovation. Um, and I really um, just really truly believe it's about change. Hmm. So that's my definition. And, and um, what do you think are some of the ways that you commonly hear other people understand it that are, you know, either not very helpful or maybe overly prescriptive? So there are about, um, I don't know, maybe a thousand innovation frameworks and with, you know, five or 10 coming out every day. Um, and they all try to codify innovation in very specific ways. And there are, you know, horizons or boxes or whatever is the kind of framework that people are trying to decide what is the right type of innovation mm -hmm. um, is. So people will talk about incremental innovation and that's typically like refining some small piece of something. Mm -hmm. And then people will talk about innovation that's, you know, um, adding something kind of in the middle area, so a product or something like that. And then innovation that's like breakthrough innovation, disruptive innovation that has a thousand names that's mm -hmm. adding a business model. Um, and I, I actually don't believe in any of that. I think if you're moving directionally toward your goal, you are doing innovation. I don't, I don't really care what it's called. Um, I think people get wrapped around a pole a little bit trying to take a, a framework, make their own framework, figure out how you actually operationalize that. And, and what I mean by that is how do you actually do anything with the framework? Because that breaks down all the time. Um, and then they spend far too long. And by far too long, I mean, I don't know, 
three months to years trying to understand how to take that framework and actually make it be a process that they can move through with measurable results and get to goals. Um, so it's almost like the conceptual ideas of the framework um, allow them to, to be uh, immobile or allow inertia to set in as they continue to examine. So there's a lot of thinking, reading, talking, and not a lot of doing in um, if you allow yourself to get so wrapped up in a framework that you can't move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to the extent that the, the process can become the product, right? It becomes what yeah. you, you measure. And uh, it's interesting that part of that maybe is the settings in which innovation is leveraged um, and the sorts of institutional KPIs that are imposed on certain settings. I wonder too, though, if it's a question of outcomes and of what people are willing to tackle and not tackle. Um, I wonder if part of it is the scope of dreaming, uh, you know, to put it that way. And uh, and so, you know, to, to take that question in a, a, another direction to kind of the other opposite extreme, what do you think are some of the outer reaches of the positive potentialities of innovation work? And, and you know, what do you think are some of those biggest goals or highest ideals innovators should aim for? Um, I'm gonna go back to the thing you said about dreaming, which I promise will lead into an answer to your question. Um, <laughs> in the, the sort of where people are innovating um, comment that you made. Mm -hmm. So, people have started to talk about now activity metrics and value metrics. So a lot of innovation programs, and when you're starting, you have to measure activity metrics. So it's like, how many people did you get in? How many pilots did you do? That kind of thing. Um, and if you're in whatever organization you're in where you're doing innovation work and you have to be reporting KPIs or key performance indicators, Mm -hmm. you have to rely on some of those activity metrics at the beginning to show you're getting traction. Sure. Um, people get really wrapped up in, in taking the framework and figuring out um, what are all the, the metrics, what are all the KPIs that we can be measuring and we can be reporting back because they're very, and you know, just to your point earlier about uh, innovation people typically last about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. um, they really need to be able to report something which is 100% true. But then I think where people get kind of off track is you have to move into value metrics really quickly. So we've gone beyond activity and now we're going into value and what big value can we provide for the organization? And this is where I'm gonna actually answer your question. Um, the world, our community, so if you ask me what the sort of dream big version of innovation is, I think it's a change agent. It's, it's a process to guide your change agency. I'll say that um, to make really big changes in the world. So you name it, something's going on in my community. I could run it through a design thinking process and design a community intervention. Um, something's going on with COVID testing. I could run it through an innovation process and design, if, based on what my use case is, design something that's perfect for that use case. Um, so anyhow, 
my answer is it can change the world. How's that? I like that for dreaming big. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, but also to, to remember that it is the process. It's not the outcome. And this idea that it is a process to guide your change agency. Uh, I, I just think it, it can't be overstated. Um, you know, so often when we meet uh, students who are interested in innovation, they have a very specific outcome in mind. And we really do see it much more as a way to empower innovators rather than innovations, although you know we support both. I think that uh, it's too easy to slip into helping people with their innovations. And innovation in a higher ed setting really has to help the innovators come to understand how they can embrace this process in a whole variety of settings, I think. So that's a useful definition for me to hear. Uh, and I love that. One of the, I didn't, I didn't put this on my project list because we did it before COVID, but um, one of the things that I have loved is the community activation pieces of our work. And so um, we did in what year was it? 2019, it's so confusing about what years are now. Yeah. Um, uh, we had a grant with the Atlanta Downtown Improvement District to work with high schools around Woodruff Park to design, to break into teams, go through a design thinking process and design an intervention for Woodruff Park that then the student teams pitched their, um, their solutions to a panel of pretty distinguished, you know, people from Georgia Tech, Georgia State, the city of Atlanta, it was, it was kind of a big deal. Um, and then we helped kind of refine the winning design and then went to Georgia State to market the implementation of the design in Woodruff Park. And it turned out it was um, an art swap series of mailboxes that were done by indie artists in Atlanta that encouraged people to leave pieces of their own art and pick up pieces of their art um, was the winning was the winning idea that came out of a, a student, the high school student group. Um, and it was implemented in Woodruff Park. So what I loved about that project was, yes, there was something kind of cool in Woodruff Park that was great for the Atlanta Downtown Improvement District, but all of these, you know, three high schools worth of students mm -hmm. went through this process where they designed something. They were in a pitch event with, you know, city leaders, we'll, we'll say, um, and then saw that one of the group's project was implemented. So the agency, I, I'm hoping we did not measure this, which we should have, um, but showing that you actually can have an idea about something in your community, go through a design process and then have a viable, something that you would like to implement and test um, is something that I, you know, I wish I would have known as a high school student. So the idea of agency is really big. It's something that, you know, we talk about it on Sparkle Ball a lot. Um, it's really big for us. So I went down a rabbit hole there, but. Well, no, I don't think so at all. Um, you know, on a side note, I would love to circle back with you because as fate would have it, we're working with an academic partner, a divisional partner uh, at Emory and the city of Decatur uh, right now, the pilot of a similar program, uh, or at least not dissimilar. Oh. Uh, 
So amazing. Uh, awesome. more. Um, so in Perfect. terms of some of the things that you've been able to do then uh, at Orange Sparkle Ball, that's one great example. But I wonder if you could talk about something uh, uh, that you've innovated recently that you're really proud of and why. Yes, thank you for asking. Um, one of the things that I, um, well, at the beginning of 2020, we had an idea with a, a startup that we work with that we are going to start doing um, live innovation events because as we were talking to, you know, people we were working with or just, you know, friends that are also doing innovation, um, we heard the same problems. It didn't matter, you know, government innovators, academic innovators, corporate industry did not matter. It was the same, the same problems. But, um, and so we had this idea that if we did these events where we, you know, put a bunch of people from across sectors who are doing innovation in a room, we could basically start to, we did not call it this officially, but do innovation therapy. Um, and so the beginning of 2020, we launched our first live event and it was in DC. It was at the DC United Stadium. It was like kind of the most fun thing ever. <laughs> basically. And it was my last live work event in 2020. Um, so the pandemic hit. Um, and so then we were really trying to figure out, like we had this amazing thing that was starting and, you know, you could kind of feel the energy of it. Cause if you're like me, who likes to start things, you start to get a read for like energy on things. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, amazing. So we had a real heart-to-heart -heart internally trying to figure out like, what in the world are we gonna do? And we talked about like tabling it until after the pandemic. And I was like, we have this momentum. I really don't wanna do that. And no one wanted to do that. So we pivoted to webinars, which it yeah. seems obvious, um, but we ended up running a series of webinars and now have, a, you know, after 2020, bizarre 2020, we have a pretty vibrant, innovation network of professional innovators um, who come together monthly in oh. these webinars to hear specific things. So sometimes like we, we just had one that was about um, putting an innovation program together and it was um, now one of our, our friends, I didn't know her before this live event, um, who works at the Census Open Innovation Lab, and they do amazing open source data innovation projects. Mm -hmm. So she was talking about building that program. And next month, we have somebody who's talking about building a corporate innovation program. So matching corporates with startups and designing pilots for, for that process. Um, so we, so I would say, and again, it's a community activation thing, so you might be getting a little bit of a, um, a message here. <laughs> what makes me excited? Um, but I, I have been very pleased with how we have been able to activate a community of innovators um, across sectors so that we really can have that cross-sector conversation um, and, and really understand there are certain things that you can do you know, it's back to the value metrics and activity metrics. There are things that you can do at the very beginning, but then you really quickly need to move to showing real value. And that's the same pattern that you see in 
in corporate is the same pattern you see in government, same pattern you see in at university settings. Um, so I would say that's the thing I'm thinking about um, most, you know, when I think about what makes me proud, I think our perseverance and being able to pivot very quickly with the pandemic and still make that happen um, mm -hmm. makes me very proud of our team. It, it's interesting too, um, you've called up what I've found to be some of the important challenges in both corporate and higher ed innovation settings um, that pivot from activity-based to outcome-based metrics um, and you know the, the community of innovators. And in, in all settings, these things are crucial. I think the big differences are you know, uh, level of tolerance for that moment of transition from activity to outcome-based, and those, that will vary a lot by setting. Uh, willingness of the different players to uh, uh, participate in a more collaborative cross-functional or cross-silo uh, sort of community. You know, those things can vary so much by settings that you can lose track of those fundamental truths being the same, I think, in very really different places. Uh, and ultimately, you know, the community piece is so crucial. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons it's always fun to talk to you about what you're up to, because um, there is such a community focus to, to everything you do, whether you're planning a conference or solving a specific, you know, problem. It's something that we realized, um, it, you know, this is just a learning from us doing this kind of work, but we are hearing the same things. And, and we, because we do work across sectors, I think everyone thinks that, you know, no, this is because the government is so slow, which we know that that's true. <laughs> I know that's true. Um, and then industry does not think they're slow, but they're still having the same problem. We're hearing the same problem. So it's not really that, you know, the government moves so slowly that's causing the problem, probably. There may be some sort of other things happening there. But if we see the same problem across, across you know, somewhat fast-moving industry and slow-moving government, maybe we should talk about that problem. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been really fantastic. And it's, it's been a huge learning experience for me because we've had a couple of times where people have put stuff in the chat like, what does this have to do? So what does open source data have to do with health? Or I don't think this is applicable to me because I'm in government and it was a corporate speaker or like really push back on that, which I think is always helpful, you know, mm -hmm. because you're like, okay, we have not made the connection well enough in our, you know, our setup on this or, so sure. I love getting that pushback as well. Um, and then, to an earlier point that you said, and this is just sort of makes me sad, but we were having this conversation uh, a couple weeks ago. If you look at the people who are in the um, our innovation network, and it's like big universities, big companies, government people, about 75% of them have signed up with their personal email, which I think is about the, you know, how the longevity of an innovation job, hmm. which really is problematic mm -hmm. or uh they may be going sort of incognito because they recognize that what they want I mean, to do innovation versus what they can do in their current setting that's another maybe. problem i've seen too 
Um, either way, yeah, not the sure. best story. Well, so speaking of uh, uh, people contributing and adding to chat, um, I see that the questions are starting to roll in. So um, I would like to encourage everyone who's uh, joined the conversation to go ahead, put your questions in chat. Uh, I'll give you just a minute to do that. And I have just one more question for you, Megan, um, which is beyond the great work that you're doing with Orange Sparkle Ball. Personally, is there still a problem that you really want to solve or to state the question in terms of the kind of agency we've discussed to get today, what do you still want to innovate to make the world a better place? Um, thank you for asking this. So during the pandemic, so let me, I'm from, I grew up in rural Michigan and Shannon, you and I have talked about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I love Michigan. Michiganders, those people in Michigan are oh. called, are very, very into Michigan. And that it has not they left are. me despite uh, To the extent that forever. I've always wondered if we should make a gender distinction and, uh, and allow for both Michiganders and Michigese. But, I agree with that. Right? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we have birds yes, of a feather flying together. So, you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, so anyhow, in this, in this pandemic, I have spent the last year in my hometown, um, it, actually in my family home with my, my dad and my stepmom who've been very gracious about having somebody crash for a year with them. Um, but it's been super interesting. I think it's sort of like the perfect storm of, it's a public health crisis. I, if I was an SME, which is subject matter expert in anything, it's epidemiology. So it's like kind of the perfect thing where I have a lot of opinions um, and understanding the rural urban divide. Cause I've always, since I left Michigan at 2019, um, I've always lived in an urban area. So whether that's Atlanta or the Bronx, um, it has always been very urban. Um, so it, I have been getting more and more I'm going to just go ahead and say it radicalized about this idea of the rural urban divide mm -hmm. um, and tackling that. And so one of the things that we're working on with some partners that we work with a lot is um, our rural innovation program. And we, our goal is to pilot it and we're looking for a small community and some funding to figure out how to pilot it because it's a, a big lift. Um, but so that's the next area I would love to tackle because I think it touches on some of the um, hotbed political things that are going on. Mm -hmm. So if we could go in and figure out how to tackle that, that would be amazing. And of course, and to, thing to, tackle. to take that uh, full circle, of course, the, the political things that are going on with the urban-rural divide, it can no longer be separated from the public health things that are going on. Um, so, you know, we have politicized public health to such an extent. There's a great question that came in in chat. So um, someone is wondering, uh, you know, listening to this recording uh, and to everything that we've said about innovation, wondering how it translates to actually a career and to earning an income. So uh, does Megan or how do other innovators earn money and support themselves and their families? I ask because all of this sounds and seems sort of abstract. Thanks in advance. That's, Sorry. that's a great question. <laughs> it's a great question. And I led you down this path. My apologies. As soon as you I totally jumped did. into meta, I, I threw us right off. 
And my answer is there was a guy named Dexter. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, one of the best lines from a previous episode of Emory Innovators, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, all right. So I, so I'm gonna just say it's about hustle. It is 100% about hustle and making opportunities for yourself. Uh, after that, I'm going to say there are innovation jobs. Um, an innovation skill set is overlays almost exactly with an entrepreneurial skill set or an entrepreneurial skill set. An entrepreneurial skill set is creating something inside a lar larger organization. So it's starting some, it's using the same skills that you would use to start a business, but starting something internally inside a larger organization. So the difference is your funding comes from the mothership instead of funding from VCs, your friends and family um, bootstrapping. So all that to say, all of the things that I've talked about are, um, exist in all of those areas. So you might be able to find an innovation job. You might need to honestly start something to get the skill set and have the legitimacy to walk into an innovation job or you could go into a corporate or a bigger organization and start to maneuver yourself toward something that's more of an entrepreneurial. So I have this idea, I'm gonna start it on my own time, whatever are the rules there, um, to start showing that you have, uh, honestly, it's, it's hustle. You have the hustle and kind of the um, foresight maybe mm -hmm. to push forward. So I think there are a lot of places that you could go push into those things, but all of those um, all of those words mean the same thing, basically. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was a super helpful answer. Well, and I think you know it can be tougher when the person you're hearing this from has their own sort of agency or business because imagining that step is the next step beyond. The first step to your point is acquire the skills, figure out the various ways they can be applied. Um, and then if you have enough people, you know, clients you've worked with over, you know, over time that you can make a business of it, but certainly there's those other things to be done first. Well, and I, I have a lot of friends who have stayed in corporate, but they are always the ones who are the entrepreneurs and you kind of get tagged at, in corporate. So, you know, the company decides we need to start something. Oh, we know that person can do it. And you get tagged that, that person um, and you get pulled into new projects and that's kind of an ideal place to be because you don't have to worry about money the hustle is, is smaller um, but you get to do new things mm -hmm. so I think that it's what I have found is go in with a consulting mindset which is basically like start asking questions about oh have we thought about doing this this way or I wonder if this would be a helpful way to do it so you're telegraphing that you're actually thinking of um, improving. So back to that, what does innovation mean? I think it's any change. You're always thinking about how to make things better, how to make changes that make things better. Mm -hmm. And if and you can do that in any organization, sometimes it falls flat, but um, you'll get a read pretty quickly if it's going to fall flat, but you can get, you know, kind of get the skill set going while being supported. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, those are all I mean, interesting. And I think points. that's viable. The the only thing, having been the uh, in an entrepreneurial corporate setting for a while, that I would add is that 
everything you said is true until the point change meets culture. And what you start to discover is that people say they want to innovate, right? Um, and but you know, once that fundamentally changes, uh, you know, the thing that butters their bread, um, systems 100%. systems resist change. Let's just put it that way. But which is normally at three years, like I put up uh, three fingers and Shannon laughed at me. Um, but yes, 100%, you will get your heart broken. I guarantee it at least once. My heart has been broken twice um, by putting together programs that I truly believed in that got killed because of politics of the organization. Mm -hmm. However, every time you put one of those programs together, you build that skill set or you refine that skill set. And so, you know, it's kind of. This is a horrible analogy, but it's kind of like dating. Like you have to go through the process to understand like how it works, and you have to have your heart broken a couple times <laughs> before you can kind of get 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 yourself together. So right. yes, half or seventy five percent of those amazing programs that you build internally will be killed. Mm -hmm. uh, we have another good question from the audience, which is uh, this person's really enjoyed the conversation and wonders. What are some of the common why innovation can't happen here myths that you would like to permanently bust? <laughs> we don't have the right framework. We don't have a culture of innovation. Um, we don't need it. We're doing fine. Actually, in, so Ben, thank you very much. That's a really good question. I'm not going to be flipping anymore. Um, I think the one that I would really like to, to in all seriousness, like to never hear again is we are doing great. We don't need innovation because you'll say that and then you'll, you'll turn around a year or two later and you'll think, oh my goodness, everyone's moved ahead of us. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just a egocentric position that is never good for whatever the organization is. Mm -hmm. um, this point of everyone having passed us is an interesting one because uh, increasingly innovation is becoming a hot topic in corporate settings, as you know. Right. Um, and part of that is because everybody is, you know, struggling to meet shareholder expectations, and we're constantly on this, you know, hedonic treadmill, you know, more and more. But uh, part of it too is that uh, we're seeing this real renaissance of entrepreneurship because it's become so easy to start things on your own. The digital tools are there, the distribution networks are there, the uh, marketing and and communications networks are all there. That a single person can move so much quicker than an organization in some ways. I'm wondering what you think that bodes for the future and if it's going to run into uh, systems questions, whether those are sort of corporate settings or big systems like urban rural divides, like you've talked about. If there's, um, if there's some aspect of those problems that is created by this disconnect between uh, speeds of movement. For sure. Um, I'm really glad that you asked that question because a lot of our work is what, so Europe and Latin America call this open innovation. Um, I think North America hasn't quite landed on this language exactly, but I would call external innovation. So it's taking a big organization and finding, typically it's a startup that has a technology solution, doing a match, and then running pilots to test whether that technology solution can solve 
whatever is the problem, the pain point defined by a use case that the bigger organization has. That's the perfect way to both um, provide a commercial agreement for the startup that helps support the business model, um, move very quickly, and, and now I'm going to get in super tech speak um, stuff, so I apologize in advance. But by doing that, the corporate has their R&D paid for by whoever has financed the startup. So mm -hmm. some venture capitalist has financed the R&D for this corporate. And I think, in my opinion, the sooner every corporate can get their mind around, we don't need to... We don't need to develop a solution internally. We need to move quickly. And the ROI on that is we don't really need a big R&D budget. We can look externally. Somebody else has already done our R&D. That is amazing. So, and that's happening, uh, I would say slower than I think it should, but it's happening in corporate. I, I, don't, I, I don't see it happening so much in, so like higher ed or those settings at least not in a structured way. So mm -hmm. I think that's one obvious answer to your question. Um, and then I think, you know, to your next question of what does that mean for um, other areas in problem solving? I think the same thing can happen. The challenge is, so like, um, you know, I'm thinking of the, my hometown in Michigan, there's no central decision maker that would say, um, we are going to go with this technology to solve this problem for the whole community. So mm -hmm. it's a fragmented leadership just by definition because it's a, a small town and as well as the city has the same problem. But I think there has to be another step typically in um, places where there's fragmented leadership or, or you know, coalitions of leadership to understand, to set some goals and figure out what are the, you know, the three things we're going to work on this year mm -hmm. and then define them. And then you can go through the exact same open innovation process to source solutions to them. And that mm -hmm. process really works and is quick and is cheap. Mm -hmm. Well, this that for an answer. And that's a great <laughs> answer. And it's, it's useful for thinking uh, about settings like higher education, right? Uh, decentralized decision-making often uh, and, and, you know, I think one thing I've seen is uh, the more uh, elite and well-endowed the institution, the more likelihood that individual schools uh, function more autonomously. Um, and so, you know, because you're not forced into these, uh, these structures that come from needing a leaner decision-making uh, process. So uh, I think that's true of a lot of settings. Well, uh, so we should probably wrap up for everyone on the call, but let me just say this was a ton of fun. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I really appreciate the bigger picture thinking uh, about uh, innovation, its processes, its potential outcomes, uh, and the ways it can drive change if it isn't just plain synonymous with change. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. This was really fun, Megan. Thank you for having me. I always love talking to you and I look forward to the next time I get to, to um, talk, do innovation talk with you. It's, it's a blast. Uh, this, is, this is great. We'll get it on the books. Actually, it's on the books. Better still. I was going to say, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emory Innovators. To hear additional episodes, search Emory Innovators on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.